Okay, so we are in lesson four today, and we're going to talk about the calling of Isaiah. Now, you might be wondering, okay, so George, we're, we're up to chapter six. Why talk about the calling right now? Because we just spent five chapters talking about the indictment of the nation. And it was his vision, the vision of Isaiah. Now we get to his calling? I don't understand that because that's not the way we would write a book, right? If we're going to write a book, we're going to talk about the prophet first, how he got called, what his, what his mission is, and then we're going to talk about what the problem was, okay? Well, there is a reason why things are written the way they are. They're written not in our Western-type thinking, but in the Eastern thought, and the Eastern thought here is basically to proclaim the mess that the nation is in. So we saw that, first five chapters, right? The mess that Israel is in. And in the midst of that mess, God calls a man. Now, what we're going to focus on is just 13 verses today, because, you know, we've been plowing through the chapters in the other lessons. Why the first 13? Because there's some significant things in these 13 verses. So let's talk, first of all, about verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can look with me, Isaiah chapter 6. Notice, notice what Isaiah, or the writer, is writing here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, your sin purged. Also I have heard a voice from heaven saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste, and without inhabitant, and the houses are without man, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed man afar away has removed man far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And yet a tenth will 
be in it and will return and be consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. Okay, so we're going to focus on these 13 verses today and talk about his calling. So let's talk, first of all, talk about the timing, okay? The timing. The first thing I want you to see is, is that Isaiah had the vision in the year King Uzziah died, which would have been about 739 B.C. So he had this vision 739 years before Christ, okay? So he did it in the year King Uzziah died. Now, why is that significant? King Uzziah was a king of Judah, if you remember. He reigned for 52 years. In the midst of his reign was stability. The nation was strengthened militarily. He built fortified cities. He armed everyone with the newest and latest weapons of his day. And he had lots of peace in his era. Problem with Uzziah is, is towards the end of his life, he got kind of arrogant. When things are going well, do you think we have a tendency to get arrogant? We kind of get a, have a tendency to think that everything's going well because of us, right? He did the same thing. Now, his problem was, is that he and his arrogance believed that he could now serve God directly. So what did he do? He went into the most holy place to offer incense. And this is recorded in the scripture, in the narratives, in 2 Kings, also possibly in 2 Chronicles. And what he did there was, he went in to the most holy place, the only place that the priests of the Lord could go. He went in to offer incense. The high priest and many of the priests were there to withstand him, to tell him to get out. They said, get out of here. And as soon as they are told, he's told to get out of here, God strikes the king with leprosy until his whole body begins to be consumed with leprosy. Now, what's leprosy? We think of leprosy as Hansen's disease, which you've seen that lepers in Asia and so forth, and parts of their body are, parts are missing, and that's because with Hansen's disease, your nerve endings die. And so you rub off a part of your body. Well, in the Old Testament, though, it could be a rash. Any kind of skin disease was considered a leprosy. But he was covered from head to toe with leprosy. It says he turned white. And so they got him out of the holy place, and he spent the rest of his reign as king isolated from everyone. He had his own special place in the palace where he was kept, and he was isolated there. When he died, they didn't even bury him in the tombs of his fathers because he was a leper. So this is the guy in the time where everything happens. So here's what happens now. He dies. And what comes after him, his son isn't a good guy. The other problem is, is what comes after him is a time of instability. And so it's in this timing where the king who was stability leaves and there's instability. Isaiah has this vision. And that's, I think, pretty significant for us. 
Because for you and I as believers, it's not a person. If your focus is on some guy being the guy who's going to lead us and, and bring prosperity and stuff, you have missed the point. Because here there was a guy who was stable and he's gone. And what do they look to? They look to men. But what's Isaiah going to be seeing now? God. So let's talk about what's going to happen here. And it's significant what God tells him because it's not what he may necessarily want to hear. What do you mean? So let's go on. So here's the picture that we see in verses 1 to 4 now. He sees the Lord. Now this is significant because very few people in the Old Testament Scripture saw God. Isaiah saw a vision of him. So first of all, what he sees on verse 1 is God on his throne. He sees a vision of the Lord seated on his throne. The Lord seated on his throne. That in itself speaks for itself. Who is in control? The one who's on the throne, right? So in the midst of instability that's going to be happening, he sees a vision of who? God on his throne who's in charge. All right, next. next. He also sees seraphim. Okay? He sees seraphim as well. One thing I forgot here is the train of his, his robe filled the temple, which is in Jerusalem. So this is talking about his sovereignty even over Jerusalem. But here's the seraphim. He sees angels with six wings above the throne of God. Now, let's stop for a moment. Have y'all seen pictures of angels? They're on the internet. Every once in a while, somebody will post one on Facebook and, you know, happy angel birthday and everything. Have you seen those kind of postings on there? Have you seen that? Pictures of angels everywhere. Now, with the pictures that you have seen of angels, how many wings do they have? Two. Actually, when you read the scripture, they actually can have four or six or more. So here is the seraphim. Now they are the ones who serve God Almighty and serve him above his throne. In particular, these have six. Now here's what he says about these six wings, okay? With two, they what? Covered their eyes. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew around. Now why do they cover their eyes? They can't see God, even though they're created as well. They can't view him in all his holiness. Covering the feet, that is, an, that is an ancient Near Eastern concept of humility. You cover your feet. And then the wings for them, to, are other two are allowed for them to move around and serve. Okay? So they had six wings, and they're above the throne of God. The angels cried out, that the Lord is holy. So they're continuing crying out that God is holy. Holy, holy is the Lord. Okay? Continually. Now the threefold cry suggests supreme or complete wholeness. So when we talk about God being holy, he is completely holy. He is complete in his holiness. He is supreme in his holiness. There is no one else like him. He is the essence of all that is holy. God is, okay? So that's why they're crying there. 
Now, what happens when you're in God's presence? That's what we're going to see here now in verse 4. The shaking of the foundations of the doorsteps suggests the presence and the power of God. So this, he's trying to show us here how awesome God is. That this is something other than anything he's ever experienced in his life. Now, why is this significant? Well, we're going to see it here in a moment, how he responds. And I'll talk about that for, at length here in a moment. Let's talk for a moment about the smoke. The smoke can refer to the cloud of God's glory. So it's the smoke filled the temple is what it's saying here. How do you, how, why do you see the cloud of his glory? Well, remember when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration with his disciples, they were in the midst of a what? Cloud. And they saw Jesus in all his what? Glory. When they came out of Israel, they were led, excuse me, out of Egypt by day, they were led by a pillar of what? Cloud. In Solomon's day, when he was dedicating the temple, the cloud of glory came upon the temple and filled the temple. So the, the smoke or the cloud in the Hebrew there reflects to the reality that we're talking about the glory of God is everywhere. That's who he is. He is someone awesome. So now we come to the response. What response? Well, when you see this, it draws a reaction. So I want you to notice with me, we're going to look exactly what Isaiah says here. Look with me at verse 5. And so I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. All right, now let's stop. For my, oh, wait a minute. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. All right. What you're going to see here is the reaction to who God is. All right? So the reaction to who God is. What is that? Isaiah became aware of his sinfulness when he saw the holiness of God. Now, I'm going to explain to you, the words that are used here are not describing an aha moment. You ever had an aha moment? Where you became aware of something and you're like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I understand now. Yeah, wow. That's not what he's having here. He proclaims a word, woe is me. For I am undone. Now, that seems kind of benign to us as we read it. But it's kind of like, oh! Oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. Like, have you ever, had, ever done something wrong and your parents caught you in that exact moment? And how were you thinking and feeling at that moment? Did you have an aha moment? Oh, it's mom. It's dad. No, no, you weren't. You're were like, oh, I'm in trouble. That's exactly what's going on here. He realizes I'm in the midst of God. 
and I'm undone. I'm a mess. I am not worthy. Because he goes on and says what? I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the people of, amidst of a people of unclean lips. Now, let's stop for a moment. We've got to think about this. This isn't the only place that this happens. Every time someone comes in contact with God, except for Abraham and Moses, every time someone comes in contact with God, especially when you go to the book of Judges and they see the angel of the Lord, they are like, oh, I can't believe we saw God. Oh, Ezekiel, all of them. The Apostle John, now remember the Apostle John? The Gospel of John describes him as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Here's somebody who says he loves Jesus, Jesus loves him. You go to Revelation chapter 1, he sees Jesus in all of his glory. What does he do? Falls down flat like dead. You realize the reality of the awesomeness of God. And it shakes you to the core of who you are. Now why would it shake you? Because when you realize when you're in his presence, just how bad you are. Just how bad you are. So for instance, think about this. Remember in the Gospels, Jesus is teaching by the source the seashore there on the Sea of Galilee. He says to Simon, because the crowd's big, they can't hear him, hey, put out your boat a little bit. I'll, I'll teach from your boat. He puts out the boat a little bit. He teaches the crowd after he's done teaching. He says to Simon, hey, let's go fishing. But Put out your nets. Oh, master, you know, we've been fishing all night and we haven't caught anything. He said, no, no, put, put, your, put your nets over on this side. And so he did. And they brought in a huge catch of fish, more than they could pull in with their boat. They had to call another boat with John and James to help them to get this in. Here's how Peter responds. Now, in that interaction, you're never going to see Jesus say anything to him about, Peter, you're a scoundrel. Peter, that's not good. Peter, you got a problem. He just says, put your net over here, and here's what happens. Peter looks at him and says, Get away from me, Lord. I'm a wicked man. I'm a wicked man. Because he realized whose presence he was in. Do you understand? I know we like to think, and it's correct to think, that Jesus is our buddy and our friend. But he's more than that. God is more than that. Do you understand? If you were in his presence... You would be awakened with your sin, not your righteousness, because you have none. Do you understand what I'm saying? We like to walk around and think, well, I'm okay because of this. But when you're in the presence of God, that all gets stripped away. And you realize when you're in his presence, if I'm here by myself, I'm sunk. And that's what's going on here with Isaiah. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? That's, that's what's happening here with Isaiah. Now, it's interesting 
So Isaiah, what does he do? He confesses his sin and his hopelessness. He confesses his sin. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst, people of, in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's not just confessing I've done wrong. He's confessing I'm hopeless to take care of it. All right, so let's stop. I think that's a significant point there for you and I to think about. So we all have things that we struggle with, right? We all have sins that continually beset us, sins that we're constantly wrestling with, sins that we want to overcome. Do you understand the first place you've got to begin? I'm hopeless to take care of this on my own. You recognize it, but you also have to be recognizing the fact that you're hopeless. Why? Because that's the only way you can go to God and get the help to take care of it. Do you understand? And so that's what we're going to see here next is, is we're going to see the cleansing of Isaiah, okay? The cleansing. So when we come to verses 6 and 7, one of the angels flew to Isaiah with a live coal from the altar and touched his lips. Now, that, 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 that should immediately, when you read that, you're like thinking pain, okay? So I remember, I don't know, I, I guess it was a traumatic event for me. So I remember in... Uh, had to be 1968 or 69. So I was probably three or four years old, okay? So you're thinking, you can remember back that far? I can remember this event. So my dad was in Vietnam. Or maybe was just getting back from Vietnam, all right? And we lived in a little trailer court in Pitt County in Greenville, North Carolina. And the trailer court was right next to the Pitt Plaza, which was where... Uh, Sears was, there was a movie theater, Roses was there, I mean, and, and all these different stores. Now, I remember, this is one of the memories I have of being there. The, one of the only memories was, is back then, they didn't have gas barbecues. You use coal, right? You bought a bag of coal, you heated it up, and we had chicken. My dad loved barbecue chicken, so he must have been home. So... When the coals go down, they just have nothing but ashes. So George, in all his smartness of either three or four, decides he wants to figure out about those ashes, so I stick my hand down in the ashes, and they're hot, and I burnt my hand. Now, I guess that's why I remember the incident, okay? Because I'm like, these are coals, you don't put your hand on the coals, okay? So when we read something like this, we're like, oh my goodness, yeah, but remember, it's a vision. So this isn't physically happening to Isaiah. But it's a vision of something that's happening spiritually. And the coal was put from the altar, put to touch his lips to what? Purify him. And that's exactly what happens here. So the angel proclaimed that Isaiah's sin was atoned for. His sin was taken from him. He was purged of his sin. He was cleansed. Notice, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. What does he do? He touches his lips. 
The angel touches his lips with a live coal and says, your sin, your iniquity has been taken from you. From you. Now, here's what happens then. God asks a question. So God provides Isaiah with an opportunity for service by asking the question. What's the question? Well, look, at, look with me. Here's what it says in verse 8. And I heard of the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? So God's saying, Who can I send? Who'll go for us? That's a calling. Okay? A calling. So what happens now? So the word us here is a reference to God, hence at the Trinity. Who'll go for us? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is a hinting to the Trinity, okay? Here's what else happens. Isaiah responds that he would willingly serve God. I'll go. I'll go. Now, listen, this is what happens in all of these callings of these prophets in the Old Testament. God calls them. What do they do? I'll go. Some of them, like Jeremiah, before you were formed, I knew you. Jeremiah, I called you before you were even formed in your mother's womb. Now, the interesting thing is, is that when God calls them, he tells them what it's going to be like. And it's not what we think. Because typically, and I know this because, you know, in my training and school when I went years ago and and, in the time that I sensed God's calling on my life, you have this sense of you're going to do all these wonderful things for the Lord. And people are going to respond. It's interesting, with all of the callings, he tells them right up fact that nobody's going to listen to you. In fact, things are not going to be good, okay? Not going to be good. And so let's take a look here. Here's what Isaiah's message is, okay? So verse 9 and 10, Isaiah is to proclaim a message that will be rejected by hard-hearted people. He's proclaiming a message that's going to be rejected. Okay. I'm, I'm hoping what I'm about to say will free you. What do you mean free me? You and I, at various points, share the gospel with people, right? We tell them to come to Christ, right? We tell them about Jesus, what Jesus has done for them. We present to them the life that they can have with Christ. Most of the people we tell that to reject us. Don't listen to us. Don't care. Tell you, don't bring that up again. I don't want to hear that. And here's what happens. When we do that, I know it's happened with me. We become defeated. We become thinking, well, there must be something wrong with me. There must be something wrong with what I'm saying. 
Maybe I didn't say it the right way. Maybe if I had a better way of sharing it. Maybe if I knew what George knew or if I knew what this guy on TV said or whatever, then maybe they would listen. What I want you to see is, is God, here's God calling a prophet to his children, to his people, and he's telling him, you know what, they're not going to listen to you because they're what? Hard-hearted. That has nothing to do with you, right? You know, nothing to do with you. So I'll give you an example. Like, so this morning, my wife is working through something, and uh, she wants my brain to help her with whatever she's working on. And uh, I'm not being very helpful. And she's getting frustrated with me. And, and I'm not being helpful because I had a splitting headache. My mind wasn't functioning. Now, did she have anything to do with my headache? No. Maybe she was adding to it at the moment, but she didn't have anything to do with it. But she had to deal with the consequences of me, right? Was she asking me something that was wrong? No. Was she telling me something that was wrong? No. What was the problem? Me. Listen, when you are sharing the message that God's put on your heart to share with somebody, you can't control where that person's at. You can't control the condition of their heart or what's going on in their life at that moment to where they're what? rejecting you you're only supposed to what share share that's what we're supposed to do right and aren't you glad isaiah responded and did what god told him even though he's telling him what it's not good they're not going to listen to you here's what else isaiah says how long how long must he deliver a message to a people who will reject it? That's a good question. How long am I supposed to do this, God? How long am I supposed to keep up with this? We and I ask those kind of questions, right? How long are we supposed to do this? If people keep rejecting us, how long? And so God tells him the duration, okay? God tells him the duration. He must proclaim the message until judgment comes. He's to proclaim this message until judgment comes. Now, let me explain something to you. The judgment that he's going to talk about initially is the judgment of Babylon upon them. Now, Babylon would attack the nation after Isaiah is dead. He would take them away Babylon would take them away into exile, but that's going to be decades after Isaiah is dead. So he's supposed to proclaim it until the judgment comes. Even though the judgment's not going to come in his lifetime, he's supposed to proclaim this message. Proclaim it. Let's go on. God promises that all will be lost as a remnant will be left. So again, he's bringing hope into the message, and this is where it's going to be helpful to Isaiah. Because he's saying to Isaiah, yes, you're going to proclaim this message till the judgment comes. Things are going to be desolate. That's what he describes here in the last verses of chapter 6, how desolate things are going to be. But I'm going to relieve a stump 
a remnant. I'm not going to totally wipe them out. So there's still what? Hope. Hope. And that's the calling of Isaiah. Now, the interesting thing is, that could be very well the calling of a lot of the prophets. Because they were told right up front that they're not going to what? Listen to you. But God still tries to what? Reach out to them. 